Now, speaking of apartments and condos, let's talk about renting, landlords, tenants, evictions, rent hikes. The B.C. government has just confirmed the maximum annual allowable rent hike in 2021. So if you were a renter, listen up to this one. Okay, let's check in now with David Hutniak. He is from Landlord BC. He represents the landlords in the province. I'm very pleased you could come on again. Hey, David. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, so the government has announced the maximum rent hike in 2021, 1.4%. That's the maximum landlords can put up the uh, tenants' rent next year, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, what do you make of that? Well, let me say this real quickly, Mike. I mean, the challenges for our sector are things like property taxes, insurance premiums, utility costs, maintenance costs, and on and on and on are increasing by substantially more than the 2021 1.4% increase. So operationally, when you have, uh, you know, a single source of revenue like we do, which is rent, uh, this uh, challenges the viability of one's rental business, which is obviously not good for the owner, but ultimately not good for renters and the broader community. Uh, we need a viable and vibrant rental housing ecosystem to continue to provide uh, and invest in this important uh, housing typology. But I just also just want to quickly add, but having said that, Mike, you know, we're obviously, uh, you know, we obviously appreciate and understand that these are challenging times for many renters. So as a right. sector... What we're going to have to do is obviously look for ways to mitigate uh, some of our cost drivers and manage our, our expenses going forward. But, but you know, the, the challenge is there's a whole bunch of them that are not are out of our control, like property taxes and insurance costs, and right. those have just simply, you know, gone through the roof. Yeah, I mean, for a, t- for a typical landlord out there, if they can only raise the rent by 1.4%, uh, do they end up effectively almost kind of losing money? Because I, I'm, I imagine the input costs are probably more than that. Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we yeah. had done studies in the past where we were compared sort of the actual operating costs versus, uh, you know, the maximum allowable increase when it was, you know, more than 1.4 percent. And, and, and there was a significant gap, uh, even when we were seeing, you know, 4 percent increases, uh, you know, sort of on a cumulative basis. And, and right. that, that's going to continue with this particular increase. But again, you know, these are really challenging times. And it was, uh, you know, there was a time when we were allowed to uh, do an increase, uh, I guess, prior to uh, September 2018, which was 2% plus the CPI. Uh, you know, that, Right. Just, uh, just let me, let me inter- interrupt you there for a sec, just to explain that to the listeners, because under the old system, the maximum allowable rent was the inflation rate plus... 2% on top of that. That was the maximum yeah. allowable. Now the government said, okay, during this pandemic, people are struggling, they're losing their jobs. We are going to remove that 2%. So now the, the maximum rental increase is just the inflation rate, right? Yeah, correct. But the, yeah. The, the 2% was actually eliminated in 2018, in September 2018. So we've been dealing with this, uh, you know, for a couple of years now. Yeah. But again, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's there's what about uh, a know, rent what about well, a rent freeze didn't the government put a rent freeze on there at one point well the rent freeze was during this covid period and it actually yep. continues until december 1st i mean and this this is the thing i mean we're not looking for sympathy because it's in short supply for our sector at the best of times mike as you well know and not let alone now but i'm simply what i'm simply describing to you is a reality here is that there are there's a lot of risk in our sector to 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 provide rental housing to operate it it's a very low margin business uh you know you have to have a long-term horizon here 
And, you know, whether you're a big landlord or a small landlord, uh, you know, our expenses have exceeded the maximum allowable increase for multiple years, decades, virtually. And and then now during this COVID period, you know, we had, we had the eviction moratorium, so those rent deficits, which we're hoping to recover, the uh, rent increase freeze, et cetera. So, I mean, we, everyone just needs to appreciate that this is a really important housing typology. We need it to be vibrant. We, we, we need to continue to invest in building more. And all we're saying is that, you know, these are challenging times, and our, our sector yeah. is going to really need to, uh, you know, make some significant adjustments here. Speak, speaking to David Hutniak from Landlord BC, represents landlords in the province. What about eviction? I know the government put a ban on evictions during the COVID-19 pandemic, but that ban has been lifted too, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that was lifted uh, effective September 1st. And, you know, certainly uh, there was, you know, a fair bit of discussion around that. Uh, It's sort of two parts to this. This is really, uh, you know, sort of uh, phase two of our sector returning to, uh, you know, what we would call a a true state of normalcy. Um, But, uh, you know, there's some uh, advocates uh, suggesting there's going to be a massive wave of evictions. That's just not going to happen. The reality is we're seeing vacancy rates increasing, rents are softening. You know, uh, landlords need their units filled uh, so so that they can derive that revenue. Uh, They're going to have to, you know, continue as as they did throughout this COVID period to be accommodating and, and work with their tenants. We expect that to continue. Uh, in addition, yeah, there's uh, the province has actually done a great job, in my view, is sort of helping renters and landlords navigate through this crisis. And uh, one area is that, you know, they've structured a rent repayment framework, which is really going to be fair to renters and, and how does landlords. That, how does that work, that rent repayment e- system? E- sure. So during this COVID period, which is March 17th to August 18th, uh, any of the rent deficits incurred, uh, landlords and, and tenants will basically strike an agreement to amortize the recovery of those through uh, June of next year. Uh, we're suggesting, because it's, it's uh, available to landlords, to you know, look at their individual tenancies and, and consider further extending that amortization. I mean, we want to keep people housed, but by the same token, yeah. we obviously want to keep the, the industry vibrant and, and continuing to, 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 to move successfully forward, because What's like I said, the, uh... this is really important housing. What's the um, the vacancy rate like out there, say, in, like, Metro Vancouver? For people who are looking for a place to rent, is it easy to find somewhere? Well, it's much easier now than it was. I mean, that's a yeah. hard stat to get accurate, you know, get an accurate fix on. But we know for a fact that even back in June, we were seeing, you know, uh, units being uh, vacated sort of in newer buildings with, you know, at higher rent price points. Uh, and, you know, we expect that to continue. Uh but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's um, you know, we've read uh, in media reports ourselves here, and I, I don't know, there's some saying it's, you know, 6 7% in that range now, but yeah. I don't know. I can't confirm that, but I can okay. tell you by talking to our members, there's definitely a softening in, uh, in vacancy rates and rents. David, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about flying during this pandemic and the new normal at YVR. My guest is Tamara Vorman. She is the president and CEO of Vancouver International Airport, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thanks. Thank you. I, re- I appreciate it a lot. You've had an extraordinary career here in our, in our province. A lot of people are, are familiar with your CV, uh, former president at, at Van City, uh, deputy finance minister, and now starting now starting earlier this year, the new president at YVR. What an incredible time for you to take over take over this job. You've been a, a few months in now. 
as the president of the airport during this pandemic. How's it going? What's it like? Well, it's obviously a very different uh, airport than than what we would normally see. Uh, but I've been very uh, pleased with how we've been able to respond to COVID, the safety protocols we've been able to put in place, the new testing pilot that we're going to have uh, with WestJet coming up. You know, this has always been an airport that has put the uh, the needs of people first and really f- reflected the best of our community and our region. And uh, it's no different uh, during COVID, although, of course, what it looks like is different. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, people are are so proud, justifiably proud of this airport, one of the, I think, the best in the world. But like myself and for many other listeners probably listening right now, I haven't been there in, in months since the pandemic began. I mean, what's it like there when you go to the airport now? Yeah, it's one of the um, uh, best kept secrets, I think, in a way, uh, Mike, because, you know, we all know what it's like to uh, live with COVID when we go to a grocery store or get our haircuts or go to a restaurant. But as you say, people have not been uh, traveling in any great numbers uh, since the pandemic started. And all of the things that have given us a worldwide reputation for safety and excellence and customer service are absolutely in place now. So we've got protocols. Of course, you have to wear a mask. We've got social distancing. We've got some really uh, industry-leading technology around using sensors to make sure that surfaces that are cleaned are cleaned to the standard that we think and giving us immediate information back so we can adjust. We've got UV uh, light on all of our uh, kiosks uh, at the border, and now we're working on a testing protocol that uh, would allow uh, passengers to be tested before getting on a plane. Okay, despite that, though, we continue to see... Uh, flights identified coming into YVR that had passengers with uh, COVID exposure. So I'm just taking a look at the BC Center for Disease Control website, and it lists a whole bunch, whole bunch of flights. Air India on August 26 from Delhi, a KLM flight from Amsterdam uh, on the same day, the day before, a Lufthansa flight from Frankfurt with with COVID exposure on on the flight. I mean, when people hear about these flights coming into YVR with potential COVID exposure on them. I mean, what what can you say as the president of the airport? This is to be expected, I guess, that some there, there, some positives will be on some of these flights. Yeah, I, we completely understand why the public health authorities are issuing those notices, and and we work very very closely uh, with them. Uh, but I think the key part there is uh, potential. And so in this days where we're still getting our, our data and our contact tracing working not only uh, provincially but across the country and around the world, the public health authorities really do have to put out a public notice if they think there has been a potential uh, case of potential transmission. Our uh, information, uh, though, uh, from the uh, federal transport minister and the health authorities is that there has not been a single documented case of transmission aboard an aircraft since in Canada since the pandemic uh, began. And so the protocols that are on board are very, very good. Does that mean that people uh, are, uh, uh, that, that the virus didn't come in uh, via, via air traffic and international travel? Of course, we all know that that was part of it. And that's why there's a high degree of vigilance in the, uh, in the public health messaging. Right. But I think it is important for people to know, for those who need to travel, that it is, uh, it is um, it, nothing is risk-free these days, but certainly the highest safety protocols are in place. And right. like I said, as far as I know, there's not been a single transmission aboard an aircraft. Would, would you therefore encourage people to come to YVR to fly, that it's safe to get on a plane? 
I think what we've heard from the what we've heard from the public health authorities is that uh, they know that people need to travel for essential reasons. So we're seeing people having to travel for health reasons, for family reasons, for some essential business reasons, and we want to make sure that when people come to the airport because they need to travel, they have full confidence in the safety and protocols. And I can say uh, absolutely without hesitation, I myself have taken a flight uh, from uh, Vancouver to uh, to Edmonton, and it's a changed experience from what we uh, were used to in the past. Uh, and uh, some of it is a is a great improvement. You know, the way that uh, we've got the the cleaning protocols and the way that the food is packaged and things uh, actually are, is a very very good. Speaking of Tamara Vorman, she is the president and CEO of Vancouver International Airport. You mentioned the uh, agreement you have with with WestJet. Uh, Let me play a a very brief clip here for you. This is uh, Ed Sims. He is the CEO of WestJet. And here he is talking about their mandatory mask policy in conversation here with CBC. Any guests who decide that they are simply, for whatever reason, not going to wear their mask unless they have very clear exemption from their physician, from their doctor we will be saying to them, you need to have this mask on for the duration of the journey. In the event that they ignore uh, a first warning not to comply, they will face suspension from travel. And that's the big change. We're putting teeth into Transport Canada's policy to say, in line with our trade association, IATA, if you choose to act in a way that's not in the interests of those guests sitting around you, it's like choosing not to wear a seatbelt. Okay, as the CEO of WestJet speaking there, I thought it was interesting that he spoke up about this sort of new zero tolerance policy on on mask use and speaking out publicly on that. In your experience as the head of the airport, I mean, has, has there been any problems with non-compliance and people not willing to put on a mask when they get on a plane? We haven't had that experience in the airport. You know, we have extra staff who are are walking the floors and making sure that uh, that we have 100% compliance. And for people who maybe forgot a mask, being able to give them one, uh, and so on. We have we have heard, of course, in other sectors of uh, of uh, uh, people resisting that uh, being told to wear a mask. But so far at YVR, we have uh, not had any of those issues. However, we do support on an aircraft. It's a different environment. Right, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller environment, and we support the actions that uh, WestJet took uh, in support of their staff uh, as well as their passengers. Right, and you mentioned earlier that you've got a new uh, testing project going on with WestJet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we're we're trying to just like everybody else is. We're really trying to uh, understand uh, how to live with the COVID virus and what it means for travel. And we've been working very very closely with the health authorities, trying to add to the data that they have about transmission and how the virus uh, works. And so we're working on a testing pilot, be 100% voluntary, on uh, select domestic flights that would allow passengers to be tested before they board the plane. Wow, you mean they'd be tested for COVID? Yes. Right, and how quickly would you get a result there in the test? Well, part of what we're looking at is uh, exactly which test to pick. And there's been uh, some that have been developed uh, for use at Heathrow Airport in London. And as you've probably seen, if you've been tracking this, there's been all sorts of new testing regimes that are being licensed uh, in in countries around the world. And so we want to make sure that we're working with the health authorities to pick the one that's most effective, uh, easiest to administer from our point of view, and most convenient for uh, passengers. And there's we're 
we're still in the process of selecting that, making sure it hits all of those marks. So I can't tell you exactly what the test will look like, but it will be a test that you take uh, before you get on the plane, which really matches what we do uh, in safety and security other ways. You know, you we check we check for your passport and ID when you uh, check in. We check again at the CATSA screening point. We check again before you board the plane, and people know, therefore, it's safe from a security point of view. We right. think the same kind of protocols around health and COVID testing makes sense because it's what passengers expect. And so by the time they get on the plane, they're confident that it's COVID free. Okay, that's really interesting. So would the goal of a program like that be to screen passengers? So if you if you test positive for COVID, you would not get on the flight? Or would it be for sort of contact tracing later if they test positive later? At this point, uh, it would simply be a pilot and we'd be looking to, because it'd be voluntary, we'd be looking to, uh, to gather data and determine how it works. Depending on the results of that pilot, of course, uh, the health authorities and Transport Canada uh, may want to uh, take action that would make uh, protocol more consistent. But at this point, we're still in the testing and learning stage. Okay, very interesting. Tamara Vorman is my guest. She's the president of uh, YVR. Uh, what about getting on a plane and, and the sort of the cleaning protocols around around planes? Because people are there's a lot of people out there who may be, I'm, I'm sure, nervous about getting on a plane in, in, a, in a confined space. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the cleaning protocols on a plane to keep it COVID free? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, cleaning, cleaning protocols are very, very high on, uh, on, on airplanes at the moment. Uh, planes are 100% cleaned and sanitized uh, in between uh, every flight. Uh, many, many planes have uh, UV light, uh, which is very high quality cleaning uh, inside uh, washrooms and spaces like that. Uh, there is, uh, when I flew on an Air Canada flight, uh, every passenger is given a COVID kit, which uh, includes hand sanitizer, uh, mask, uh, cleaning cloth. So people are well equipped uh, to make sure that if you didn't bring your own, you absolutely have a consistent and high quality. And then the food uh, is packaged in such a way that it has no contact and, of course, bottled water. So yeah. it is, and then masks are worn for the duration uh, the duration of the flight. And so it is a very, it is a very structured uh, process. Uh, but again, the flight that I, uh, I took recently, it was very comfortable. Uh, people were uh, adjusting and getting used to it. And, uh, and the passengers that we're talking to here have been um, pleased with the, yeah. with the flight experience that they've had. Just lastly, you mentioned about how people may get on an international flight if they're traveling for uh, mandatory reasons or they're essential, it's essential travel. We are sort of loosening up some of the travel restrictions domestically as well. And there's campaigns to get the tourism business going again, which has really just been battered during this, during this uh, pandemic in, in a province here in British Columbia, which relies so heavily on tourism. Uh, and I know you guys have a, what, a new agreement with indigenous tourism providers. Can you, can you talk briefly about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday, we signed a, a three-year memorandum of understanding with the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, and we're the first airport in the country to do that, and we're very pleased to do so. Indigenous tourism, before the pandemic, was the fastest-growing segment of tourism in our country. You know, people internationally, as well as domestically, are very interested in seeing uh, more uh, rural and remote communities and connecting with Indigenous culture uh, while they do it. 
the learnings around the land and around sustainability are of particular interest, as well as uh, some food tourism and culinary. And so we want to make sure that we, as the gateway to the province, hard to get to those remote places if you're not traveling through YVR at some point. So we committed to sharing data, information to start to rebuild for the future, because we know there's a when it is safe to travel, there's a huge demand. And we want to make sure that we're doing our part to get that demand uh, back up and running as quickly as possible for the smaller Indigenous uh, communities across the province. Okay, I look, I look forward to the day when that arrives and uh, that better days are ahead. Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for your interest, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about uh, BC politics with some of the red-hot election speculation out there uh, these days, I think that uh, Horgan poured some gasoline on the, the fire there yesterday with some of his comments about, hey, there's elections going on in other provinces, elections BC is okay, running an election this fall. You know they're thinking about it. They gotta be just drooling over these opinion polls in the back rooms of the NDP. Are you kidding me? They've got such a big lead here over the Liberals. You gotta figure they must be figuring, trying to figure out a way they can get in front of the voters here and win a majority government. Let's see what the Liberals think about it. My guest is Peter Millibar. He is the Liberal MLA for Kamloops North. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Th- thanks a lot for coming on. What are you hearing about a possible election? Do you think this is real? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the only one that could actually call it would be the premier. Um, he, he can say he's a minority and he lives day to day, but he has a confidence and supply agreement with the Greens that says there won't be an early election. Um, we, as BC Liberals, can't force an early election, especially when the House is in session and there's no budget vote or confidence votes to be had. Uh, so for the premier to keep tap dancing around, it means he is seriously considering it. Um, I would suggest you might want to consult with uh, Minister Dix and find out uh, what it's like to have a big uh, early lead in a poll and and then go to an actual election because that didn't seem to work out too well for him in 2013. So it's a snapshot in time. It's a poll snapshot in time. But obviously during an election, uh, things change dramatically. And and, uh, if he chooses to have an election, we'll be ready to go. But obviously we think it's more important to focus on economic recovery right now and worry about an election when it's scheduled next October. Right. Of course, Dix was the leader of the NDP when he went into that election against Christy Clark with a with a big lead, and, and she pulled off that historic comeback and, and knocked him off. So, yeah, that's a good one to keep in mind. Let me play this for you, Peter. Here is uh, Premier John Horgan uh, yesterday talking about how other provinces are running elections. This is the one that really jumped out at me. Have a listen. Uh, With respect to an election campaign, I'm advised uh, that uh, there's an election underway right now in New Brunswick. There's an election upcoming in Saskatchewan, and Elections BC is uh, is prepared to to provide uh, a safe uh, way to vote if that uh, isn't something that comes up. Okay, he's not ruling it out. In fact, I think, if anything, he just increases the speculation with comments like that. But your thoughts? Well, absolutely he does, and, and Minister Farnworth uh, will not commit to a false sitting, even though it's in the calendar, and it's part wow. of the confidence and supply agreement with the Greens. There has to be a false sitting. Uh, Minister Dix is talking about how the pandemic's here till 2022, which lays the groundwork for the narrative that an election's going to be held uh, during a pandemic, uh, regardless of timing. So, I mean, uh, let's be real. They're, they're looking for 
uh, pure political opportunism here. We're saying it's time and the public needs us to be focusing on how to get the economy uh, recovering as best as possible, especially as we're seeing unemployment uh, spike in British Columbia. Uh, and instead, the Premier is worried about playing political games uh, as some sort of attempted power grab. Okay, Greg, you, do, you guys don't want an election, is that correct? The Liberals do not want an election right now. Well, we're, we're scheduled for one in October next year. Uh, right. They already, with the Greens, made sure they extended themselves an extra six months uh, by moving it from a spring to a fall election uh, a couple of years ago. It was good enough for them then. We're saying, uh, you know, the public and, and the economy needs uh, people in the legislature to be focused on trying to recover the economy that's tanking in a big hurry here right now, uh, not trying to do uh, some grab to, to basically win a couple extra seats. It may or may not work out for them. If it doesn't work out, it'll be nothing but sour grapes on their part. If it does, uh, is the public any better served than what's happening right now? Okay, speaking of Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA, and you know, quite often... We typically hear from opposition parties, sometimes they, they want an election. Like they'll be saying, Bringing on, bring it on, let's go. Uh, is this the case that you guys don't want an election right now because you're so far behind in the polls? No, as I say, uh, 2013, we were behind in the polls. Uh, governments uh, across the board, uh, that's not unusual in an election window to see um, polling numbers change dramatically. It's not about that in the least. It, it is literally, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we're seeing uh, unemployment rate grow in BC. Last last month we were fifth in the country, and now we're third in the country for unemployment numbers. So we're outpacing the rest of the country with people uh, becoming unemployed and out of work. Um, the government should be focused on trying to uh, get people back to work, get people um, participating in the economy again, uh, not worrying about election windows when there's a fixed election date and, and everyone knows that it's next October. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from Horgan yesterday. Here he was uh, asked again about the potential for a snap election in British Columbia, and he pointed out this minority government. Have a listen. We have been a minority government for the past three years, which is a long, long time for a minority government. Uh, And uh, we have been prepared for an election every day of that three-year period. I I think back, Keith, to three years ago, uh, the, the, I think the shelf life of uh, John Horgan government was supposed to be six weeks and then six months, and then now apparently we'll go on forever. <laughs> okay, he'd love to go on forever, but uh, that's up to the voters. You mentioned earlier, Peter, that it, it would be Horgan's call on this, on this election. I mean, isn't it really technically, according to the law and, and conventions of our system, it's up to the lieutenant governor, isn't it, to, to decide whether we should go into an election? It is, uh, but, uh, you know, the B.C. Liberals cannot knock on the door of the lieutenant governor and ask for an election and have her even consider that as an option. The Green Party cannot do that. Uh, there is no confidence votes for the Greens or, or the B.C. Liberals to be able to bring down the government uh, anywhere on the horizon. So the only person that can go knock on the lieutenant governor's door is the premier. And after three plus years, uh, the, the law of averages say the lieutenant governor would grant uh, the request by the premier. Um, it would be nothing but sheer political uh, maneuvering on his part uh, to the detriment of the overall economy. Things uh, in terms of uh, programs and, and other supports would grind to a halt uh, during the election. Then there's the post-election transition. This is just not a good time to have an election, plain and simple, when there's not one scheduled and needed anyways. And, um, you know, the, the Premier is playing games. He knows very well procedurally 
He is the only one that can effectively trigger an election. Well, I mean, by um, asking, by asking her for one. But you mean by he could trigger an election by going to the lieutenant governor and asking her for one? Absolutely. Right. He's the only person yeah. in the province that can do that. So, But she can say no. Like he, she, she could say no. She can say, I mean, she said no to Christy Clark. I mean, Christy Clark well, asked for a do-over election last time, and she said no. Forget it. Yeah, two weeks after a general election, not three yeah. years after, not not with the confidence of supply agreement signed with the Greens, with the Greens not uh, demanding an election. Um, so the Premier needs to actually start to be a little more forthright with people and not play games uh, uh, thinking that people are, are not paying attention to what the procedures are to trigger an election or not. Um, you know, this is a Premier that, that uh, loves his photo ops, uh, does not seem to want to stand in front of the cameras when things are going south, where has he been on the education file? Where has he been on, on all sorts of issues, the economic recovery plan and the missing plan that's not out there? Um, he tries to brush things off with a bad dad joke and chuckle and move <laughs> forward. The public need proper leadership in the middle of a pandemic. They need the, the yeah. Premier to start stepping up and answering some of these hard policy decisions, not trotting out uh, ministers that have been, uh, frankly, a, a disaster in their portfolios. Everything from temporary layoffs with Minister Baines um, you know, to the housing and, and the opioid issues with uh, Minister Robinson and, and uh, Minister Darcy. Um, the Premier's nowhere to be seen on these types of things. Um, why, you know, why, is he so, why is he so far ahead in the polls then? Because he, he's very adept at, at dodging and weaving and making sure he goes to good news photo ops and, and not uh, well, no, isn't it, heavy mail facts. Isn't it, isn't it more a reflection of uh, the province's success in managing this pandemic? Well, if you look across the country, I, I think everyone has uh, been getting fairly high marks as a government for how they're managing uh, the pandemic relative to where they were in, in the popularity right. polls ahead of time. If you shovel billions of dollars off the back of a truck, one would hope that the government would be able to, to curry some uh, favorable uh, numbers. Uh, the problem is that the money runs out at some point. You look at the community benefit agreements, the only one benefiting are the 19 unions that are heavy uh, donators to the, okay. the the NDP. There's $5 billion of extra costs on there that could actually be employing thousands more people doing more public work for uh, the same amount of money to the okay. taxpayer. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up because I really w- I want to quickly play this for you. This is uh, yesterday we saw the BC government announce the, the latest uh, step on this Broadway subway project, $2.8 billion project, uh, construction set to begin this fall. The community benefit agreement that you mentioned ensures that only a a select number of trade unions in the construction sector will get work on this largely get work on this project a lot of them generous financial donors to the ndp but anyway here is horgan yesterday talking about the broadway subway line the major infrastructure projects like the broadway subway line are key to our economic recovery When completed, the Broadway subway line will transform Vancouver, bringing people from one end to the other, one side to the other, culminating, of course, at this point at Arbutus. And I know Mayor Kennedy uh, Stewart will have something to say about getting to UBC. This is a high priority for phase three of the mayor's vision, but we're working on getting phase two completed. And that starts by making sure that we're connecting our, our tech hubs, connecting our job generators here in the lower mainland. Yeah, you see, this is another reason why I keep thinking election, because it just sounds kind of like an election-style commitment and, and the money is flowing. But uh, quickly tell me, Peter Millibar, about this uh, community benefit agreement and why you think it's a bad thing. 
Well, it, it adds cost. It adds uh, it, the scope of each project gets reduced. We've seen it on the Trans-Canada Highway projects. We've seen it on, on the Patello Bridge uh, project. We're seeing it now on the Broadway line. Why? Because it's uh, union. Because it's union only. Union only construction. Because of the, the constricting and, and that it has to be only those nineteen uh, designated unions. It's not open to any other unionized uh, workforces yeah. or open open shop workforces. Look, yeah. the Broadway line absolutely needs to get done. We're not saying that in the least. We're saying there's a finite number of government dollars to build uh, public assets. Uh, they could right. be taking all those extra cost pressures uh, that the CBAs are, are creating. They could be building more schools with that. They could be doing more seismic upgrades in schools. They could be doing climate adaptation work down in the Fraser uh, Riverbanks. They could be doing all sorts of things, which would actually employ thousands of more people at a time that we're seeing unemployment climb for the same amount of taxpayers' dollars as they're going to dump into this sweetheart deal with their 19 hand-picked unions that shuts out 80% of the workforce in British Columbia. We simply right. cannot be squandering uh, precious dollars when we have record deficits under COVID um, to have these sweetheart deals. We need to be maximizing right. the amount of employment and economic good we can get out of those same tax dollars.